Hello and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. This edition of Pole Position was recorded on August 1st, 2016. Hello and welcome to Pole Position, an ongoing conversation at the Hoover Institution about the 2016 election. My name is Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow at the Hoover Institution specializing in California national politics. And this being the trade deadline for Major League Baseball, we've made two major acquisitions today for this podcast. Joining me in studio are Mo Fiorina, a Hoover Institution senior fellow, Stanford University political scientist, and co-author of The Culture War, The Myth of a Polarized America. Yes, available on Amazon.com. Go buy it. And we're also joined in studio by Bruce Kane, professor of political science at Stanford University and director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West, and also co-author of the Hoover Institution Lane Center's Golden State Poll. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be nice here. Nice to be here. So, buried in the news last week amidst all the hoopla in Philadelphia was this little nugget. A group called the End Times Prophecies claimed the world was coming to an end on July the 29th. They actually put out a YouTube video, and the group proclaimed that the second coming of Christ would occur at the same time as a magnetic polar flip. And guess what? The earth did not come to an end. There was no major catastrophic earthquake. Things did happen in Philadelphia. Bernie Sanders called for a unified Democratic Party, then he promptly left the party. And the week before that in Cleveland, there were no major earthquakes. Maybe Ted Cruz, the closest to a seismic rupture. Maybe he ruptured his political chances. Otherwise, to paraphrase Gerald Ford, we survived our long national nightmare. It is over. <laughs> the Olympics begin on Friday, possibly a timeout in presidential politics for a few weeks, though in this day and age, it never seems to stop. So gentlemen, I'm curious about your assessment as to where this race is right now. With this caveat, I saw a poll this morning, I think it was CBS News, New York Times, which gave her about a four-point bounce, which means that she now is back in the lead. What do you guys think is going on here? I think that it's what we expected, which is a, a bounce back to the Democrats after their convention. That's the common pattern. Mm -hmm. What would be surprising is if it is not just temporary, but actually leads to a big gap in the polls. And I think right now the odds are that that's not going to happen, that as we get into the Olympics, uh, things will probably go back to normal. The only reason that I would hesitate to say that history uh, may not be a good predictor mm -hmm. is that you can't predict Donald Trump. Uh, the smartest strategy for him is to keep the, the attention on Hillary, but he can't do that. He is temperamentally incapable. And so he keeps saying things that bring headlines and keep the, the attention on him. So it, the normal rules may not apply. It may be that uh, all during the Olympics he will continue to roil the waters and have the race be about him rather than about Hillary, which was the what the Republican strategy was in the convention. So I think most likely what we're seeing right now will go down. Most likely it's a tied race. But if things continue the way we're seeing, it could be a very different uh, transition in history here. Mm -hmm. I think what's remarkable is how stable uh, vote choices, intended vote choices, have been. Uh, throughout the spring, Hillary was, uh, she held a narrow lead. Uh, Trump took a, either pulled even or took a narrow lead in most polls after the Republican convention. And then after the Democratic convention, Hillary has again taken her narrow lead again. And I think the fact is Hillary is just so well known that people know what they think of Hillary. 
And uh, Trump, in a sense, his appeal is al almost impervious to what he says, uh, <laughs> that the people who are supporting him don't really care how many gaffes he commits. Right. So I, I think it's right. I think we have a close race. Um, this is one of those races in which the campaign might actually uh, make the difference. Political scientists tend to discount the importance of campaigns relative to fundamental factors. But it's close enough in enough states, and that's the real key here, uh, that the campaign could be uh, determinative in the end. One thing which you've looked at in the past, Mo, is this issue of likability, which we hear all the time. This candidate's more likable than that candidate. That candidate won because they're just more likable. But you've actually gone back in history and you noted, for example, in 1952 that Adley Stevenson did a little better than Eisenhower on the, on the personal dimension. In 1960, Richard Nixon actually did a little better than John Kennedy. But what happens in an election when you have two people who just are not likable? He he clocks in at about 60%, I think, in his negatives, and she's somewhere in the low 50s, I think, the last I saw. So what, how, do the, how does the public react in this scenario when you just <laughs> when you have two, two pronounced negatives? I, I don't know. I think we are in historically uncharted waters here. That to have two candidates uh, who are that much underwater in terms of their personal qualities, um, we haven't had that before. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right at the national level. Uh, those of us in California remember um, the Gray Davis's uh, race for re-election <laughs> when uh, the two candidates were equally um, disliked. Right. And so what we know about that dynamic is that it discourages turnout. And that really brings it back to something that I think Mo would agree is going to be critical in this when he says campaigning is going to matter, the critical part of the campaigning could be mobilizing uh, the, the people, the few, the hardy <laughs> that are willing to participate <laughs> in this after all the negativity uh, that will probably ensue. I watched her speech with uh, great interest as a recovering speechwriter. Um, I'm always fascinated how they put together the speech. I'm interested in the process. I'm interested in how it flows. And I look at it and I try to dissect, okay, what are they trying to achieve out of this? And hers I found very fascinating in this regard. Uh, she starts out in her speech by singling out Bernie Sanders. Uh, which is clever. It gets his people in the speech right away and also gets him out of the way as far as her purposes are concerned. Then she segues and she gets into President Obama's agenda and makes it very clear that she is a progressive like him and sees the world the same. But then as you go further along, Bruce and Mo, you see her sort of little tinges of her husband, which, which we thinks maybe he had a hand in this and that she makes conciliatory gestures, most notably on guns, a speech targeted to Pennsylvania, I would say. Mm -hmm. So you see a little, these flashes of Obama, you see a little flash of Bernie and a flash of her husband. Is that, is that a good metaphor for where the Democratic Party is today? You mean a melange? Uh, a yeah, melange. probably that works. Well, her uh, juggling three balls in the air. For yeah, I think there are three balls, but I do think the bigger of the three balls is a kind of 1990 strategy uh -huh. to reclaim the middle. Right. Uh, yes, concessions have been made to Bernie's people in the party platform, but we don't see a lot of evidence that party platforms in the end matter very much or right. are taken very seriously either by the voters or by the, can the candidates. Um, but what I see is uh, the conventional strategy that if the more moderate candidate tends to prevail and the selection of Tim Kaine, who on the East Coast has a fair amount of visibility, is regarded as a centrist a healer uh, from a swing state, Virginia, I think that was very much out of the Clinton playbook that they used very successfully in the 90s to reverse what they believed, and probably rightly, was a veering of the Democratic Party too far to the left for too long and unable to get back to the middle. So 
Yes, I think you're right. There are other elements. There are Obama in there. There was a little bit of the State of the Union with lots of policies. There was a little bit of everything. But in the end, I think the most important thing I took away was that uh, this is a 1990 strategy against essentially the Republican Party's 1968 strategy. But maybe also know a 90 strategy in this regard. It's a three, four-way election. It's mm-hmm. Hillary, it's Trump, it's also uh, Gary Johnson with the Libertarians and Dr. Jill Stein with the Green Party. And the winner may be the person who backs in, like her husband did in 1992, with about 43% of the vote. Could be. Uh, get, picking up on what Bruce was saying, I agree completely that watching Hillary, I remember thinking she's the mirror image of Romney. Romney had to try to convince the Republican base that he was a severe conservative. You remember that? And everyone knew he was moderate. So, severe, since, se- since Hillary knows he's, she's, we know Hillary's a moderate, and yeah. she was trying to convince the left that she's a true progressive. Mm-hmm. But you could just see all the moderation coming out. Boy, and severe, by the way, a word you associate with what? Headaches and thunderstorms, Yeah, right? it's a strange <laughs> term when he called it that, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So she's doing the same. Do you think she's trying too hard? Um... Well, no. I mean, <laughs> we don't know. I mean, right. we don't know about, uh, clearly, I think it's probably the case that Bernie's people, uh, they, they, they believe she's a moderate, mm-hmm. that the, the, the real Bernie, Bernie bros. Um, and so nothing she can say or do will probably uh, convince them otherwise. So for them, it's just a question of, uh, in the end, do you come back or do you go with a, a third party candidate or do you not vote at all? Right. Um, so I, I think she's probably playing her best strategy. But it is strange. You have, on the one hand, um, the, the appeal to uh, B- Bill Clinton t- saying he, she's a change maker. And then she's hugging Obama on, on stage. You know, and <laughs> the, the juxtaposition is really uh, hard to explain. It really is. Then we have the Republicans, which, my goodness, where to start? But you hear this word now being floated around by Republican thought leaders, crack up. They think the party may be in for the crack up now. I mean, do you guys do you guys think is that serious? Do you think Trump is actually the beginning of, well, to use our end of days prophecy from the beginning of this podcast? Do you think the Republican Party's days are limited, or do you think this is just a blip for them? I think both parties are dealing with what have been suppressed differences in their coalition, mm-hmm. and it's more severe right now on the Republican side for a variety of reasons, but. You know, the two-party system, there are times when all the stars align and uh, the coalitions are pretty consistent. And sometimes it takes a personality like George Bush's, uh, who put evangelicals together with uh, Northeastern business people and managed all work. But, uh, you know, for many periods in history, we've had very heterogeneous uh, coalitions in the two parties. And that creates a lot of tension. And here on the Republican side, Uh, You know, you have severe challenges to the orthodoxy of the party over the last, uh, you know, since the 90s or maybe back to Reagan if you want to go far enough back. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have people like the Koch saying they're not going to put money into uh, supporting Trump. You have congressional leaders uh, saying, you know, renouncing statements uh, by Trump. So it's hard to say... In the end, whether everybody gets united by the one thing that unites every party, which is how much you hate the other side, or whether, uh, as you say, all of this, uh, these tensions just break the party apart. I'm voting for probably not the party breaking apart, but rather uh, some segments of the party leaving. Yeah. On the other hand, Mo, let's forward to 2020. Let's assume that Trump loses to Hillary and the Republicans are back at the starting line come 2020. 
How do they avoid the same situation they got into in this election, in which you will have one candidate or several running in the mainstream lane, if you want to call it that, making an argument that essentially they can get 270 electoral votes, be it a John Kasich or Marco Rubio, a Ted Cruz or a Ted Cruz-like figure, if Cruz hasn't destroyed his career after Philadelphia, but somebody running on old-timey conservative politics. And then in that third lane, the the insane lane, if you want to call it that, the populist lane. But Donald Trump, the disgruntled radio talk show host, the business person who thinks that they can run America because they've run a business, that person is trying to capture that angry segment within the GOP. How do they avoid the same food fight in four years? Well, I'm not sure they can. Uh, one of the things we might keep in mind is that the Democratic Party did crack up in the late 60s, and it really took them 24 years to get competitive again until Bill Clinton sort of pulled them back into the center and put together a, a somewhat new coalition. Right. So the Republicans, if they do uh, come apart in this election, could be looking at a long period in the wilderness. Um, <laughs> you don't automatically, you have to wait till a new generation of politicos comes up and gets tired of losing, says we've got to do something different and reorients itself. And it's not clear that some of the old coalition partners, the social conservatives, the neocons, it's not at all clear that they're ready to give up uh, their influence uh, just yet. It may take a while. Bruce, why are, this, why are the parts larger than the sum for the Republican Party? It's, and Mo mentioned that the Democrats were in the wilderness, and there's kind of a parallel here. While the Democrats struggled to win national elections, they controlled Congress. They had a majority of governorships around America, but they could not win a national election. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you go back to the 2010 election, uh, the party got rewarded for fielding very ideological candidates. And uh, whereas if you think back to what the Democrats did in 2006 with Rahm Emanuel and the head of the DCCC, they went out and found cops and yeah. uh, people that could signal centrism. Veterans, yeah. 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 But uh, that isn't what they did in 2010. Uh, the, you had a t that was the beginning of the Tea Party period, and uh, they got rewarded. Why did they get rewarded? Not, I think, because there was an affirmation or unity around a set of principles. They got rewarded because... There was enormous uh, resentment towards uh, uh, Obamacare. There was enormous resentment about the bank bailout, even though it probably saved America. <laughs> so, you know, th there was just a lot of anger about the policies and a lot of anger uh, towards um, the Obama administration, and they got rewarded. And so that never, uh, that never forced them to sit down and think about how do we reconcile all these contradictory pieces that we have in our coalition? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the Bush administration, there were fiscal conservatives leaving in droves, going over uh, to various think tanks in D.C. and complaining bitterly about uh, Bush's policies, even before we had the economic crack up. So the tensions were there, but they never had to address them. And that's the thing about politics. When you can win because of the other side, you don't have to really pay attention to the tensions in the coalition. Governance is another matter when you have to govern and you have to reconcile all those things, it becomes a real problem. Now, that's one thing notable about the current administration. I don't recall too many people who've left the Obama White House and have turned around and written the obligatory book or the obligatory Washington Post op-ed saying that if only they'd listened to me, things were better. It's been a pretty cohesive front. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of that uh, with the defense establishment. Yeah. Well, you did yeah. have the Panetta book. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. But nobody's standing up in the middle of this election. And, and no, and it's been like relatively scandal-free. I mean, we haven't had people... Uh, trying to make a buck out of uh, being in offices. So he's, he went out of his way to keep a lot of the people that normally go in and out of office for monetary reasons, kept it to a minimum. He wasn't able to do the absolute ban on the right. lobbyists. So I, I think, 
in terms of the probity of the uh, of the administration, it's been pretty good. But I do think there were tensions about the policies, and particularly in foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. there have been minor partisan things here and there, but they have not really mushroomed to the level of a Watergate or a Lewinsky Gate or something like that. I want to read you guys a passage from this brilliant, brilliant observation of American politics that one of you may recognize, and I want to get your thoughts. I'm read this quote. What has happened in the United States is not polarization, but sorting. Prior to the 1980s, the Republican Party had a significant liberal wing and the Democrats a significant conservative wing. Today, partisanship, ideology, and issue positions go together in a way they did not in the mid-20th century. Issues and ideology used to cross-cut the partisan distribution. Now they reinforce it. Mo, who is that brilliant author? Oh, that was me. Um, it's, it's really interesting. You can pick up most uh, papers of record like the Wall Street Journal or New York Times. Uh, and in the same week, you can find a column talking about how incredibly partisan the American electorate is. Another column saying, gee, independents are setting a new record. They're over 40% of the electorate now. Right. And obviously those two things don't quite mesh. Right. And I think what's, we, have, we have what we could call partisan polarization. And that is, when, when Bruce and I were in graduate school, the parties were big tents. That both parties were heterogeneous, and you know, it didn't matter whether you were Catholic or Protestant or came from the South or the North. There but were people like you in both you'd parties. You'd be a Southern Democrat. Yeah, England, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Whereas now we've had this sorting out process that's taken place over more than a generation, elite-led. It's, it's top-down. And it's just now the case that the average Democrat is much more similar to other Democrats and the average Republican much more similar to other Republicans than was the case in the past. And so both parties face homogeneous pressures. Democrats are, get pulled to the left, Republicans get pulled to the right. And so we have this, this case of partisan polarization, but then there's this big middle out there, a big group of independents, moderates, and they're not in any sense homogeneous. They're, they're, some of them are cross-pressured, some of them are centrist, some of them are clueless, they don't really care about politics, but there's this big group that floats a lot between elections. For example, the, um, the 2006 election and the 2010 election, the first Republicans are uh, lost the Congress, the second the Democrats lost the Congress, there was a 35-point swing in independence, according to the exit polls. So they account for the volatility in the system, that there's this big, it's not a huge group, but there's this group swinging back and forth in elections. Right. Yeah, I, in fact, I've I, uh, taken Mo's term and just we're working on a law review paper, and the, the, the other dimension I would add to it is that there's been racial sorting that coincides with the party sorting. And so uh, you have this kind of conjoined polarization between race, ideology, and party that becomes quite problematic when you look at issues like voter ID laws or right. the redistricting, <laughs> which part of it is partisan, which part of it is racial. It just, mm -hmm. the whole discussion now becomes much more complex. And a lot of the um, regulations we had of the political system were all uh, developed in this earlier period where we didn't have this conjoined polarization, we had something that was much more heterogeneous. So it, it is, uh, I think, more than Mr. Trump and what's going on. I think that's the part that worries me the most about American politics today. If we're not Mr. Trump and if we're not Mrs. Clinton, would we still be looking at the same electorate in terms of the division? No. I, I mean, in fact, the, one of the things I'll give Trump credit for is he's a disorder in the sense that, that because he's not ideological, I mean, it was very, it was a lot of fun watching people like Bill Kristol and George Will 
being baffled by what was right. going on in the Republican primaries. Like, where are all these conservatives? They're voting for Trump, and he's not a conservative. And what it just goes to show was that the sorting that occurs at the elite level just washes out a lot when you get down to the voter level. And so Trump is just putting together this non-ideological collection of, of positions, and he's doing well with it. And so, so you it, say desorter, you mean he's bringing, bringing he's people bringing different back. elements. Right. He's driving away some people. Who's, out he, of, who's he bringing back? I think he's bringing back even more. I mean, granted, yeah, a lot of Republicans, a lot of blue-collar workers. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but sort of, um, in a sense, um, Well, I don't know the numbers. I mean, it's it's a hard. I mean, the, the the prospect of a Trump victory depends on him mobilizing a collection of people who simply haven't been that active in recent elections. For example, we we know, for example, that the the white turnout decreased significantly in 2012. There were just in the same sense that Karl Rove wondered where did the missing evangelicals go between 2000 and 2004, it was the same sense of where did these missing whites go? White share was down and to about 72%. Yeah, percent, yeah, I did. Yeah. There were, there were, there were uh, and it wasn't just the fact that there, there are more Latinos and more, uh, more blacks in the country, actually there aren't, uh, but it was simply the fact they didn't turn out. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so bringing in sort of uh, people who have been sort of outside the system to some extent, I think is, is Trump's main hope of winning that, that basically this turnout in, I come from Western Pennsylvania, and people, some of my relatives and everything post on my timeline. And, <laughs> and so I know there's a sort of a mobilization, I don't know how big it is going on, that I haven't seen in past elections. I have family in South Carolina, it's mm -hmm. the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. they, do, they normally don't engage in presidential politics, but they're watching this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there have been attempts at this in the past. There have been candidates that have tried to use immigration. There have been... Uh, Pat Buchanan certainly, I think, is an antecedent to Trump in some ways. Yeah. Uh, so there were pieces of it, but it, I think it took uh, changes in the economy, changes with respect to the uh, terrorism issue to really give this a kind of an emotional appeal that wasn't there in the past. And I do think that to hone in on where the, the white voter support is, it seems, and Mo, you can correct me, but my, my sense of reading the polls is that it's largely, uh, not completely, but it's heavily, more heavily concentrated towards uh, white working class as opposed to the educated white. Right. Uh, and so hence the turnout issue and hence the analogy to 68 in some ways where the silent majority not so much came off the bench but was came out of the, uh, the opposite side, came out of the uh, Democratic side. So I, that, I agree. I think that's where the turnout issue will come. But this is where Trump's kind of social media strategy and indifference to building party organization and his somewhat sloppy management skills can kill him. Because if he isn't building a GOTV operation this summer while everybody's paying attention to the Olympics, and if he isn't raising the money right. to do the kind of voter contact that we now know makes a difference, he could be hurting himself this, uh, quite this a bit is, in the fall. What drives you crazy as a Republican operative? You look at a state like Pennsylvania where I think the Republican registration has increased about 200,000. Uh, over the last couple of years. If you look at Florida, the Republican registration numbers are up as well. She is going to have ground games everywhere, doing what Obama did in 2012, knocking on doors, calling people, turning out the vote as best she can. 
and he doesn't show much interest in this. His strategy seems to be what? Well, I'll do a lot of social media, I'll be on TV every day, people will be tuned in and they'll come out and vote on the natural. And I don't know, guys, is that ever, does that ever work? Can you actually get elected president without actually doing the, the door-to-door knocking and, the, and the, you know, the, the, the sweat equity? Well, we appreciate that he's doing this natural experiment for us. It will generate a lot of papers for political scientists, so we thank you, Mr. Trump, for that. Well, but. well there, I mean, there, there's, there's two, um, two, two major influences on turnout. One is motivation on the part of the voter, and the other is mobilization right. on the part of the parties and campaigns. And I think what Trump is relying on is that his voters will be sufficiently motivated to overcome the lack of mobilization. And uh, ideally, you want both. I mean, <laughs> if you're playing yeah. an optimal strategy, you want to motivate your people and mobilize Yeah, them. that's a good point, Mo. And I think if you look at what happened in the California primary to the Bernie Sanders uh, versus the Clinton, <laughs> that was kind of a preview of a similar uh, divergence of strategy where Sanders was going around the state trying to get free media, uh, not investing in GOTV operations at all. And Clinton she, she went back to the strategy that uh, Obama did. And, you know, all the polls were predicting a very tight race based on these people who didn't get registered to vote and or registered the wrong way. You know? yeah. And uh, voila, you had a victory for uh, Hillary. Bruce, you know California better than I do. Um, I thought that her victory out here was attributable to the California machine. Uh, the machine that her husband helped start here in 1992. And moving forward, just mo the ability to mobilize Democrats, to appeal to Democratic bases. And I thought she effectively built along this sort of settlement approach, if you will. Yeah, I, I don't think there's one Democratic machine. Uh, there have been a bunch of Democratic machines, uh, and one of them happens to be the unions. Mm -hmm. And it is true that Hillary in 2008 mobilized uh, that machine. But... Um, you know, the party actually is fairly factionalized, but I think it had support from virtually every member of the congressional delegation, uh, all the top officials here. They just did not see Bernie Sanders as a likely winner in the November election. So even some that might have been closer to his politics closed ranks on him. I mean, when we talk about the party and we talk about elites, a major player, much more important than, say, 20 years ago, are the people that give the money because all party operations now have become way more expensive, way more professionalized. Uh, even the grassroots now is artificial turf. It's paid for. And so uh, what's we're, what we're learning as more social scientists do work on uh, the ideology of the donors is we realize the ideology of the donors is uh, at least part, if not a significant part, of the equation, and they're the ones that are uh, pushing things in more rigid, uh, polarized directions. Hmm. Agree completely. This, the studies of donors show they are like party activists, very much from the extremes, the distribution. And one of the great ironies is that uh, the reform community in the Democratic Party has for years been pushing for small donors and to get away from the large donors. And what we're <laughs> discovering is the large donors don't care that much about ideology. They want access. They want a platform to talk about their problems. They're not that much interested in ideology. They, wanna, they don't want to alienate their consumers. Uh, but it's the small donors that have been lionized by the reform community that tend to be the most ideological. The small donors had their night on Monday night in Philadelphia, and that was Bernie's speech, and then it was on, yeah. to, on to business. We began this podcast with a strained baseball metaphor. Why don't we wrap this up on another strained baseball metaphor? And that is the concept of the triple crown. 
and the electoral triple crown, which is the presidency, the Senate, and the House. Had it in 2000, had it in 2008. Do you guys think this is a triple crown year? No. No, I don't either. I mean, I think best bet for the Democrats is maybe control of the Senate, Mm -hmm. but getting control of the House, not likely. Uh, You know, it would take something inconceivable at this point uh, to really, I think, flip the House elections uh, around. So, no, I don't see a triple crown. I agree. It would take a historic landslide on the part of Hillary Clinton to put the House in danger, I think. Right. And even the Senate, uh, I would have bet a few weeks ago that the Senate is going to go Democratic, and I think probably prospects have come up a little bit uh, since then. But I still think the Democrats have a good shot at the Senate, but not the House. So your assessment as voters, do you think there's crossover voting in this election? Because I think in 2012 we had record low crossover, didn't we? Yeah, let me speak to that. Uh, people often say as, as evidence that... Um, that uh, the electorate is hardened in its partisanship, the uh, fact that split-ticket voting has declined so much. Well, they have to look at the choices voters are being offered. That uh, in the last election, for example, uh, 2012, uh, Barack Obama lost uh, West Virginia by about, I think, 25 points. And Joe Manchin won West Virginia by 25 points. Right. And are West Virginians the only ones out there still willing to split their tickets? Or is it the fact that Almost nowhere else do voters have a conservative Democrat, a, a pro-life, pro-gun Democrat to vote for. And going back to this idea that the parties are sorted, uh, back in the 80s, you could vote for Ronald Reagan and turn around and vote for a perfectly good conservative Democratic congressman. Right. Now you've got liberals up and down the ticket on the Democratic side, conservatives up and down the ticket on the Republican side. So, of course, ticket splitting has declined. There's just right. not much reason to. Now. Yeah, and I agree with that. And, and, again, the reason is very simple, that if you're thinking of running in a primary and you're trying to get the money, the union are going to say, here's the list of positions that we need you to depend. Where, where are you? And if you say no, you're not going to get funded. And similarly, the conservative groups do the same thing. So, uh, yeah, I think until you solve that problem, you're not. it's going to be very hard to give voters the choices they may want. So if you're Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania or Rob Portman in Ohio, let's say, then maybe all is not as bleak as you might think right now. I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. I think you can't just simply generalize from the last few elections about how little split-ticket voting there is. Mm-hmm. Is this election as simple to boil down to as to say this is 1968 Redux or this is 1992 Redux or or are we just are we in completely different waters now? Well, I think we go back to what we said before that there's a mixture of a lot of elements from the past that have come together in a very unusual way. So I, you know, while the Republican Party would and the people that orchestrated the convention would prefer to do a 1968 strategy. Donald Trump is doing his own thing. Mm. And uh, what that strategy is, is something about, you know, his, you know, his temperament, but some of it is tapping an audience out there uh, that has a real resentment uh, about a lot of things. And uh, that may prove to be an effective strategy, despite the things he says. Yeah, when I talk to other 70-ish political scientists, we, we often say we have the same feeling that we were getting in the 60s and early 70s, that things are going on. Things are, I think, changing. And we have an old party system. We have a party system that developed in a different era, uh, Nixon, Reagan, et cetera. And there's been a lot of changes in the economy. There's been a lot of changes demographically. And I think these these sort of new tensions are coming up. They're, they're splitting both party coalitions. And my bet is that, in fact, we look back and say 2024, we're going to be looking at parties which look different from the the way they do today. Mm -hmm. 
Final question, and we'll cut this out. Uh, polls coming out now showing her bounce post-Philadelphia. The Olympics begin on Friday, go until August 21st. Do you recommend tuning out of politics for the next three weeks and enjoying the summer games? Do we keep an eye on the polls in the meantime? At what point do you guys re-engage and start looking at the numbers? Well, we're professional political scientists. We never <laughs> disengage. But at what point, we're compelled, at what point, we're compelled yeah. by our profession right. to pay point, attention. At what point are the numbers really a barometer? After Labor Day. After right. Labor That's Day. That's the, the, yeah. the general feeling. Yeah, they settle down. But as I say, things have been really quite stable. Unlike last year, last election, they're just bouncing all over the place. Uh, things have been pretty stable. Okay. Mo Fiorina, Bruce Kane, thanks for joining us today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.